I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day and happy Easter, if that's your jam. I'm Mark Kenny, and thanks for joining us again on ANU's Democracy Sausage, a weekly program which looks at politics, policy and ideas, both nationally and abroad. We'll have a look at the Liberal Party crisis in future weeks, but today we're going to be talking about submarines and AUKUS and sovereignty and nuclear power and a whole lot of issues around that. Um, we're going to be doing that with Rex Patrick. Uh, but first, before I do that, let me bring in Maria Teflaga, Dr. Maria Teflaga, a political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations, with whom you are no doubt very familiar because she's on this podcast virtually every week. Maria, we can't we can't just ignore the earthquake that happened on the weekend. It was it was astonishing to see a hundred and two year old, hundred and three year old record of a government. No government increasing its majority between elections by way of by-election suddenly broken. Yeah, I mean, it, whenever these records fall, it's it's always a big deal. I mean, I, I think the Aston by-election is is kind of an interesting case in terms of, I suppose, the sort of specifics around that particular electorate with the previous member. But when you kind of look at the sort of swing to the against the Liberal Party at the 22 election, they lost 7% of their vote and now another six on top. Mm. Um, you know, this is in Aston, you mean? Yes, yes. in Aston. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's, whilst there are special circumstances, uh, you know, Victoria being, um, you know, not a good state for the Conservatives, it is hard not to sort of think or to sit up and to kind of consider that something, something is, there is a really important signal in this in this by-election, even if, you know, I'm I'm a bit wary about over-interpreting by-elections because I think voters sort of understand that the stakes are different. You know, it's not it's not a government that's up for re-election. Uh, you know, it's a chance to sort of make a point or, or have a or have a message or or vote for a candidate you like. So. This is my way of, oh, I'm having a bet each way. It's what, I'm, it's what I'm doing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's fair enough. Uh, I was certainly asked about it uh, in a few uh, radio interviews and so forth before the election, before the by-election, and I made the point that, you know, there would, there'd been this strong swing against uh, the Liberal Party at the 2022 election. At that time, Alan Tudge was the candidate. He was an unpopular figure, quite quite sort of had, had been in the, in the news for all the wrong reasons uh, for a period of time. And, of course... 
Scott, Morris, Scott Morrison was the Prime Minister and he was profoundly unpopular as well, as was the government. So my argument was, look, there's a record here that that, that uh, is, is, is more than 100 years old and there's a swing that's already happened. Neither of those two characters are on the ballot paper, neither, neither Tudge nor Morrison. You would have thought in those circumstances there might be some sort of um, drift back to the party and, in fact, what we saw voters do was say, no, no, we want to put an exclamation mark on on the decision we made last time and we're not having any of it. And it it really, really was quite extraordinary. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of soul-searching now that has to be done by the Liberal Party in terms of whether its base is in sort of terminal decline, you know, baby boomers getting older and, 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 and going out of, the, out of the picture, younger voters coming in, looking at the Liberal Party and what it seems to stand for, or, or perhaps more accurately, what it emphatically seems to stand against rather than what it's for. We've seen people like Tony Barry, the... Um, Liberal Party insider and strategist, a very very keen observer of these things, says the situation will get worse before it gets worse for the Liberal Party. Cos Samara, yeah, sorry, you, you it'll get worse before it gets better. No, he said it will get worse before it gets oh, worse. Right, that, those right, were his right. actual words. Um, and uh, and and Cos Samaras, the Labor aligned uh, strategist and and analyst of, of of numbers and demographics and markets and so forth. Uh, he, he he sort of predicted that if the Liberals, as it looks like they're going to do, line up against the voice, that it's going to be potentially catastrophic for them. I think that, that was the term he used. So Yeah, I can see that being really bad for them in a state like Victoria. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, 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 it's definitely, it's definitely an important watershed moment. But I guess, I guess, some of my skepticism comes from the fact that we've often had surprising by-election results, and then, you know, the election comes and the, the seat swings again. So all I'm really, what I'm saying is that they're they're very noisy results, and you know, you probably really want to look at the specific factors in that sort of seat or what's going on there to try to sort of truly understand them. We, we should be a bit reluctant to extrapolate too much from them. However, I do agree with everything you've you've sort of said and the moderates have sort of are attempting to use this to strengthen their position within the within the federal party, right? And within their various state branches because they've all just sort of had election defeats. I guess for for me what is sort of interesting is whether or not that actually has any traction with because the people who who hold seats, who hold power and resources, who can distribute them, are typically now not moderate, mm. not from the not from that faction. And 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 the analysis out of the New South Wales election was, I thought, interesting, uh, where essentially the claim was made that you know I think I think you said this, Mark. People people wanted a Labor government. They didn't want a Labor government. They didn't want a left wing government. That's why they threw Perite out and voted in a Labor government. There's a deeper sort of structural issue at play in this political party and political parties are extremely adaptive, you know, like they, they, they do, they reinvent themselves all the time. What is, I think, the most interesting question about the Liberal Party right now is whether or not they reinvent themselves and readapt into the same structure they are in or if they morph into more than one structure. Yeah, well, there's this live debate at the moment about whether they should stick to their so-called values, whatever that means, pretty ill-defined term, uh, stick to their positions or whether they should shift to the centre. And some people are saying, well, you shift to the centre, you become a, a paler version of the Labor Party. How does that 
how does that advantage you? Well, it strikes me the answer to that is, well, do you want to be a party of government or do you want to be a party of the fringe? If you want to be a party of the fringe and say, look, these are our values, that's fine, but don't pretend you're going to have enough numbers to court what you need to put together a majority and become a government. Just on the on on, I'm going to bring in Rex on this because he's he's been in politics and uh, we'll, we'll have some observations on this as well. But just on the on the seat of Aston, let's let's not forget. I mean, yes, there's a strong Chinese population. It's actually a bit less multicultural than a lot of other seats. And if we think think back to Peter Dutton's rather curious speech uh, on taking over um, as opposition leader after the election. He didn't do the traditional thing of acknowledging the message from voters, of uh, you know pr- promising to revisit a number of the policies that the Morrison government had taken to the election. He, he instead talked about, signaled signal really, talked about surrendering those teal seats and actually rebuilding the Liberal Party in the outer suburban mortgage belt seats where he thought the Liberal Party could make up ground. Now, that is exactly the kind of seat that Aston is. And at the very first opportunity for that strategy to work, it has spectacularly failed. I don't think there's, you know, there's there's no sort of polishing that particular. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. But I guess, I, I you know, the, like Aston's been in the Liberal Party fold for for. A long time now, 20, 20 years, and I mean, I mean, I guess, that, I guess that's actually the question: Who is Dutton talking about? Is he is he talking about that kind of voter? He he probably is, but I think he's also got his sights on what he kind of sees as uh, the conservative sort of fraying edge of Labor's base, the sort of non cosmopolitan Labor voters. Mm. But whether or not that. That like I mean, look. This is what's important to understand is that what is happening in the Liberal Party now is part of a long-running process, a process that was started like thirty years ago, and it worked really well for them for a certain time. They were able to extract, they were able to keep their their votes whilst actually not really delivering for them, especially rhetorically and over time in policy terms, and then. Uh, and 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 basically pull off conservative non cosmopolitan voters from labor and and you know that 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 gave them a majority and mm. they governed for a long time and now the bottom's fallen out of that strategy the bottom has fallen out of that strategy now look let's bring in our guest Rex Patrick he's a former South Australian senator center alliance senator and independent i think as well and is also a former submariner and we're going to be talking to him mostly about submarines but Rex any thoughts on what we've just been discussing Yeah, look, I think that the Liberal Party had a turning point back in 2019 where Malcolm Turnbull was trying to address climate change in a conservative manner through... 2018, I think you mean. Sorry. uh, Well, yeah, when he was trying to to, um, address the NEG uh, or the the energy uh, situation we had uh, as a climate change measure, he was was after something that provided uh, reliability low cost and clean energy and Peter Dutton stepped in and said no this is not going to to happen uh, that caused of course a, a leadership spill and ever since that time the the liberal party has sat you know to the right of center and the electorate is more central and given the choice between voting for a a labor party which might uh, be a little bit left of what might, might normally be comfortable um, most moderate liberals will do that in preference to voting uh, a liberal to a liberal, a liberal party that is direct, directed towards the right of politics. Um, I think Malcolm Turnbull might have got the um, the story right when he described on the weekend how 
you know, sky after dark is is uh, is a beacon uh, drawing the Liberal Party to the to the right, which is actually towards the rocks yes. upon which they will sink. And uh, and there no, does need to be some change, recognizing that you know people uh, who are uh, right wing would prefer to vote for a moderate uh, Liberal Party than they would for the Labor Party, so they can catch both the central vote and the and the right-wing vote. Yeah, that's right. And it's a very good point about uh, the sky after dark thing, uh, one certainly uh, been made before, I've certainly made it and others have as well. But just the sort of that siren call of, of, of all these, you know, sort of self-styled heroes, you know, foghorns on, on, on sky um, late at night or, or, you know, after dark as it's described. These people are heroes, heroes in the sense that they don't stand for election themselves. They don't have to put together majorities themselves or, or, or actually be accountable for these positions and yet they they speak with great certainty about where the Liberal Party's soul is, where its future is, what its values should be. And they provide this sort of nightly applause for the more conservative um, um, members of the Liberal Party. So the, the more right-wing you are, the, the more likely you are to be on there and be getting the applause of Paul Murray and Rowan Dean and all these characters. That isn't where Australian voters are. This is just a sort of a, a kind of a fanatical cabal, really, of... of um, of zealots, really, and they're not they're not particularly well <laughs> well connected. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think Rex's description of the electoral arithmetic is is spot on, right? Like, the the poll is being pulled further and further to the right. So, what is considered moderate in in that institution, especially when they're losing alternative and contesting voices, uh, means that it it actually is quite a challenge for the the Liberal Party to move. Back towards the centre. There's 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 really two ways to do it. One is to get a leader that is more centrist that can convince everyone to be disciplined. We've we've seen we've seen that model fail a few times now. Another is to actually get moderates elected. There are some major challenges. Um, parties are adaptable. Governments get old and tired. But you know, um, branch stacking being one of them. I mean, the, the sort of entryism in the Liberal Party by by religious group, yeah. you know, religious fanatics and so forth is really changed the the rank and file of the Liberal Party as well. So it is it is a, a a sort of a subset of the population which is ideologically far more conservative than the ordinary citizen. And we, we, we see this in things like support for the voice or in the, the sort of casual and widespread support for marriage equality back in 2017. And the Liberal Party isn't reading any of these social trends, you know, these new voters coming in, these people who aren't you know, prosecuting culture wars and 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 foaming at the mouth about you know biblical yeah. things. Yeah, to apply some real politic to it, right? Like, what is in what is what is inspiring about being a moderate? It's it doesn't really. It's not like a rallying call, right? No. And I know that's a glib point, but all of that energy is has shifted into the teals campaigns. Yeah. You know, uh, so so what what are the what are the moderates actually going to be able to attract people to the Liberal Party? Now that their capacity to offer patronage is diminishing, you know, it's still fairly stable in New South Wales comparatively, but in Victoria and and everywhere else, it's it's on the decline. And so that going well in Queensland, yeah, yeah. well, well, not not necessarily for the the that, well that you know it's dominated not by the LNP, the right? Yeah, yeah. LNP. that energy has to go somewhere because mm. lots of people, as Rex said, would prefer to vote for a for a centre right 
party than the Labor Party. So that energy's got to go somewhere. Is it going to be rechanneled back into the Liberal Party or is it going to be channeled somewhere else? But it's not going away. The obvious thing, Rex, for them to have done, for Dutton to have done, and he had he had the perfect cover for doing it, and 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 no doubt a great deal of license as a known right wing figure, a known conservative figure, would have been to accept the end of the climate wars as declared by voters in the election. So he could have, and he had, as I say, the perfect cover because what Labor put up was an up updated and up uprated version of uh, of coalition existing mechanism you know the the, the safeguards mechanism labor increased it uh, towards getting its 43% dutton could have easily at that point said well you know i mean we've heard the voters this thing's been going on for too long this is the mechanism we want they could have dealt themselves into negotiations if they wanted to argue for example that the transition was too fast, that it had disadvantageous effects in sections of the economy, they could have been in that negotiation. Instead, that negotiation occurred between Labor and the Greens. And what changes there were made to what Labor was proposing took the the, the final package, arguably, to the left. Uh, so Dutton... Dutton's been very cumbersome, it seems to me, on this. He had that that would have given him a lot of leeway, I think, a lot of credibility to be able to argue that he's not just a no-alition leader; he's a coalition leader. Um, your thoughts? Well, I'll just uh, weigh in there and, and say that I think that Peter Dutton lacked vision back in uh, the, the day where he rejected the neg. Uh, that was a perfect opportunity for the. Liberal Party to sit in a in a moderate position and achieve some outcomes, and now that we've seen climate change playing out through uh, elections and the clear indication that that's what the electorate wants, uh, he's no longer a, a leader without vision. He's just a leader that doesn't actually recognise what's going on. Yes, well, we will talk about this, no doubt, more. Uh, let's go to what it was that we initially uh, got you on here for, because we've talked about getting you back. Uh, it was it was terrific to talk to you last time about uh, submarines and and uh, naval policy and you know those sort of defence questions. And of course, in the intervening period, we've had the AUKUS announcement. Uh, the, uh, the the three leaders, Biden, Sunak, and Albanese, standing there in in the US, uh, releasing the details. What's your overall, uh, what's your assessment now that you know those details? Well, I just want to frame up the environment for the conversation first, and that okay. is to say that back in uh, uh, in 2009 where the submarine project was first announced, we had a Rudd-Gillard-Rudd government pushing for a, a son of Collins, that is an Australian-designed submarine. We changed then to Abbott. Uh, who pushed a Japanese submarine. Then we changed again to Turnbull, who uh, made a decision to go down the French path. And then we saw Morrison and now Albanese kick in behind uh, a, a US and a, and a British submarine. So I, I just want to put, put some caution out there as to the finality uh, of this particular <laughs> announcement. Oh, dear. You know, the, the, the reality is that governments can only control things whilst they're in government. You know, I'd point out that the 2040 date that uh, we're supposed to be building an AUKUS British-designed submarine. Uh, at that point in time, uh, Anthony Albanese will be 77 and you and I will be reading the second edition of his memoirs that we've taken from a discount bin <laughs> in a bookstore. You know, that's the reality of the situation. So just got to be very careful about 
you know, thinking that this is the final answer. You know, I've lived through announcements in relation to continuous naval shipbuilding uh, that were then followed by valleys of death where people were laid off because the intended pathway didn't actually eventuate. And I actually think there's a huge you know, problem moving forward for um, for Mr Albanese and following governments uh, in relation to this particular project with uh, with respect to cost and uh, with respect to, to risk. I, I will just go uh, firstly to the point about you know, the details being announced uh, um, by the three leaders in San Diego. Well, I just want to say that um, the reality is that there was very little detail rolled out in relation to exactly what's happening. Yeah, it was in some sense a media show. There are now, uh, I think, about nine fact sheets on the Defence Department's website, and that's what we have as a result of $300 million being spent over the last two years exploring this particular proposal. Uh, you know, the details are simply not there. We've got one page on nuclear stewardship. We've got one page on uh, um, spent fuel waste. There isn't a lot of detail, and in actual fact, what's happened here, and we're now seeing... Uh, you know, people uh, from the Labor Party coming out and expressing this view is that this whole thing has been kept completely under wraps and then presented as a fait accompli and there has been no debate and, uh, yeah, that's hugely problematic. Maria, do you think one of the problems with that, I mean, those, those are all I- I- exceptional points to consider and do you think one of those, one of the problems there, if we think about the, the kind of po- political institutional machinery into which this decision land one of the problems is that there's unanimity across the across both sides of, of politics on this which is a perfect perfect situation for not having a great deal of scrutiny isn't it yeah well i mean labor's picked up scott morrison's AUKUS plan you know i've seen people say and 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 you know they've they've designed it brilliantly is the the way it was put by at least one fan i read of but you know, with with both sides effectively owning this, as Rex says, there's not a lot of um, not a lot of detail yet, but not much clamour for it either. No, and I think that highlights where I think a lot of defence and security legislation and spending kind of ends up. Um, yes, very you good know, point. It, it hasn't. You know, this space hasn't been contested now for in 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 a really kind of I guess front of mind way for for yeah, many, in a really many, fundamental way yeah, yeah for yeah. many decades and that's in part because of the way it's been used for political purposes to to essentially paint Labor as soft on whatever it is that they're soft on um, and for the coalition to reaffirm their sort of issue ownership over defence and uh, security but I guess something I'd actually like to ask. Rex, because I really don't know, is what alternative did Labor really kind of have since, you know, now that the, now that that deal has been sort of signed, given that it is with a sort of important strategic partners, I guess first order strategic partners might be the way I'd put it. And also I can see that even, even if people don't like it within the Labor caucus and don't like it within the cabinet room, realistically, where could they go? I mean, is that actually really an option? For an alternative, it's it's interesting to go back to September the sixteenth, two thousand and twenty-one, when AUKUS was originally announced by Scott Morrison. Uh, Anthony Albanese was given a twenty-four hour sort of briefing period 
uh, notice in relation to this particular decision. He was running a small target strategy in the lead up to the election. And so he simply came out supporting what Morrison was doing for exactly the reasons you've mentioned, Maria. Uh, he, he didn't want to create some differentiation between Labor and Liberal on defence. Um, there was a huge opportunity uh, when he uh, took over the running of the show for him to examine this, to examine it from a cost perspective, to examine all of the the details, and to to then turn around and say, look, this is not going to suit us. You know, whilst it is you know, portrayed as special that we've been offered this capability, the reality is, um, in in during the Cold War, other European nations were offered nuclear capabilities for their submarines but declined on the basis of, of uh, extraordinary cost. You know, one of the, my big concerns here, notwithstanding that we've got a $100 billion contingency on this on this particular project, you know, the, the government's saying it's going to cost from between $268 and $368 billion. I mean, who after a couple of years of detailed study comes up with a billion, $100 billion in, in movement on price? I, I don't know how that works. But um, the the yeah the, the the huge cost associated with this, um, in the context of things like stage three tax cuts, which are going to reduce our revenue base, in the context of predictions in terms of mineral exports or or fossil fuel export ex, uh, exports, we, we've seen just in the last couple of days uh, predictions that our um, export generation will drop by something of the order of $159 billion across coal, gas uh, and iron ore. I mean, how are we going to pay for this? Even in the short term, Albanese has indicated that across the Ford estimates, there's no change uh, in relation to spending because there was $6 billion that had been allocated for the French submarine uh, and they're going to try and find $3 billion in savings. In, In circumstances where... They're trying to deal with an increasingly uncertain situation to our north. The idea that you're going to cut expenditure in the short term to deal with a submarine that arrives in in a decade's time is just mind-blowingly absurd. Um, and uh, you know, so, so there's a whole bunch of problems with this. It just to me, hasn't been thought through and hasn't been debated properly because of that secrecy that I referred to before. Yes, one wonders whether the the sort of disconnect between the decisions and the uh, accountability for those decisions uh, allows you know exposes defence as a policy area to to so much of this um, a kind of announcement waiting. You know, the 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 the, the Political credit is in the announcement. The the outcome of those announcements is so far down the track. So often, uh, they can be quite catastrophic in price terms and and capability terms. But that, that yeah, that's for another day. Let's take a very quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Uh, we're talking with Senator Rex Patrick, or former Senator Rex Patrick, I should say. In America, of course, Rex, you'd, you'd uh, continue to own that term for the rest of your life. Uh, unfortunately, you don't get to do that here. Very, very happy with the word Rex. <laughs> um, now, Which, of course, is Latin for king. So I is it? Oh, yes. 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 It might, might even uh, sit above Senator. So, uh, Good point. So I, I, I'm, I'm yeah. Good. Yes, right. King Patrick. Nice. Okay. Well, look, um, let's go to, uh, we've been talking about, you know, this in sort of general terms. Let's go to uh, some more specific questions about about this thing. And the nuclear capability. Do we need a nuclear uh, submarines? We're not talking about nuclear armed, I should hasten to add. We're talking about nuclear powered. And we're talking about this initial plan would be to acquire some of these Virginia class submarines, two, three, up to five. Um some of those will be stationed here initially as part of the US fleet from, I think, 2027. And by about 2032, 33, we will be owning a couple of them uh, and possibly more. And then the British AUKUS, SSN AUKUS, that comes in in the, in the 2040s. And there are supposedly eight of them. And between all of this, we get... You know the the involvement of the US. We get the partnership with the UK. We get two different platforms, both of them to be nuclear. Um, if you buy in the next ten minutes, they'll throw in. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does feel like it, it. It's got a lot of moving parts, and it will result in potentially three platforms being operational at once. Uh, no one's even really denying that. That's not the intention because it, it's just possible that we'll still have the conventional. Collins, uh, extended life Collins class, uh, as well as the Virginia class, and perhaps the first of the uh, the, uh, the the British astute class, um, or AUKUS SSN as it's going to be called. Uh, do we need nuclear for capability, Rex? Look, I think uh, this question is uh, best asked by you know, suggesting that the best kind of car is a Ferrari. Now, there are some people who would just instantly uh, sort of have an affinity with that idea. Uh, they are good cars, they're fast, they look good, but actually when you want to go shopping with them, with a family, they're not very good. If you want to tow a caravan, they're not very good. So it all comes down to the question, what do you intend to do with these submarines? That's the fundamental question that needs to be asked. And there are lots and lots of things that submarines can do, you know, from intelligence gathering through to mine laying, through to uh, inserting uh, special forces covertly uh, conducting land attack, uh, taking out other submarines, taking out other uh, surface vessels. Uh, each uh, each of the different types of submarines, both the older conventional submarines, the new air independent propulsion submarines, and nuclear powered submarines, can do all of those jobs. And there are pros and cons for each type of those submarines. Uh, when they go about doing that. And I'll just give you a, a, some good ex- examples. So the nuclear submarine, and, and as you know, I've been to sea on 
UK submarines. I've spent time at sea uh, on a couple of occasions on USS Santa Fe, uh, the predecessor to the Virginia class. The, you know, nuclear submarines are great if you want to uh, go down to a couple hundred metres, crank the speed up to 30-odd knots and stay there so that you can go long distances and arrive uh, in a distant area in a relatively short period of time. Uh, they're also very good for being able to uh, get out of trouble uh, when uh, you fire a Tomahawk missiles, for example, most people would not necessarily appreciate, although it will be obvious once I tell you this. Once you fire something like a Tomahawk missile, there's this huge white smoke trail mm-hmm. that an anti-submarine warfare um, force can just follow back to where the submarine was. So you know, the ability to fire off some Tomahawk missiles and then to get out of the area quickly on a, on a nuclear-powered submarine is, is, a, you know, is a great capability. However, there are times where you would rather have a conventional or an AIP, uh, Air Independent Propulsion Submarine. Uh, you know, they tend to be smaller. They're better at operating in shallower water areas. Uh, uh, they can get closer inshore to, to insert special forces, although, uh, a, again, they can't carry as many special forces as, uh, as, as a larger nuclear-powered uh, submarine. In general, they are quieter when they are operating either on batteries or something like a fuel cell than a nuclear-powered submarine. So a nuclear-powered submarine always has to have the cooling pumps running to the reactor. Uh, the, the reactor itself is simply an energy source to heat water to drive a steam turbine. So you know, us submariners refer to it as the kettle that's uh, it, it produces it produces steam that drives a very large steam turbine that might be spinning at let's say about three thousand rpm, uh, and uh, that has to connect to a propeller that might be spinning at fifty rpm, um, and as a result, you end up with uh, the need for reduction gears. Um, uh, gears involve metal parts meshing together. It's impossible to make them completely quiet. Um, so, you know, there are aspects about a nuclear submarine that make it noisier than a, a submarine that simply runs off batteries uh, and uh, an electric motor. You know, of course, uh, if a conventional submarine uh, operates for any sort of reasonable period of time, and typically at least once a day, it will have to come up to the surface, stick up a, a snorkel mast and run diesels to recharge batteries. Um, that makes it extremely vulnerable in a highly contested area. Uh, But, of course, the new uh, air-independent propulsion submarines can actually also stay underwater for a couple of weeks uh, without the need to snorkel. And, again, I've actually been to sea on um, a Greek and South Korean Type 214 submarines that have uh, uh, hydrogen fuel cells, and so I know those capabilities quite well. So it really comes down to what is it you're trying to do with these things. And, look, my... uh, Fear in relation to this is that the it's that high transit speed, the ability for a submarine to go from Perth up into the South China Sea uh, in a relatively short period of time uh, is is the actual uh, driving factor behind this type of submarine uh, for Australia. And what worries me about that is that in all instances. Um, particularly in relation to a $368 billion uh, defence program that puts all of your eggs into one basket, um, 
we should always be focusing first and foremost on defence of Australia. Uh, that doesn't require a nuclear-powered submarine. Uh, we, we should have a whole range of other capabilities. Just imagine what you can buy with $368 million, uh, billion, um, which would include you know, 20 or 30 um, uh, conventional submarines, a whole bunch of other capability, industry resilience, fuel security, uh, perhaps a, a, an Australian flag merchant uh, fleet, a whole range of other things that can be funded in, in relation to Defence of Australia. And the idea being we, when we want to contribute to any particular operations as a coalition or as an ally to the US, we take those assets that we have acquired uh, for Defence of Australia and we utilise those. We don't specifically design our, our Defence Force around the need to operate with a coalition in a distant place. Mm. Well, look... Um you won't. You will be familiar with this because uh, I know you are. Um, but uh, this goes to the question now of of, of the the British submarines uh, and the the arrangement we've entered into to manufacture them uh, significantly in your state of South Australia at at Osborne. Although there have been some doubts expressed about how much of the work will end up in in Australia and how much it will be retained by the British, but. Um, very disturbing to read the, the comments of Rear Admiral Philip Matthias, retired. He's the former director of nuclear policy in 2005 to 2008 uh, in Britain. So he's a pretty qualified sort of authority. He says that you know we're going down the wrong path, particularly in, in respect of the, uh, the, the British um, new SSN, uh, AUKUS. Uh, he says, building nuclear submarines is a hugely complex engineering talent challenge. Britain barely has sufficient skills or effective high-level leadership to deliver its own program, let alone Australia's, which has no expertise. Since the creation of the Director General Nuclear Post in 2016 and the Submarine Delivery Agency in 2018, attack submarines HMAS Audacious and Anson have been delivered late by BAE systems. The in-service date of the new first new deterrent submarine HMS Dreadnought has been delayed from 2024 to the 2030s and HMS Vanguard's refit by Barrett has taken seven years and is still not complete. We have also yet to decommission a single one of our 22 or dismantle a single one of our 22 decommissioned nuclear submarines, which is a national disgrace. This is hardly uh, inspiring confidence about the likelihood of this highly complex contract actually delivering in the way that we're being told it will? It's really strange. Look, if you just accept, and I don't, but if you accept that we need a nuclear-powered submarine, going to the United States uh, and saying, look, can you help us spin up our expertise here by basing a few submarines out here first, and then we'll get one of your uh, off-the-shelf um, proven uh, Virginia-class submarines, and then we'll get a few more, why would you then, having uh, gone down that particular pathway and noting the comments you made before, Mark, about the, um, the, the need, the, the complexity in operating several different types of submarines, having got yourself some Virginia-class submarines, why would you jump off that particular path to a highly risky uh, British-designed submarine? And as you've said, the astute submarines that they operate right now, the um, nuclear attack 
submarines of the British or the Royal Navy uh, were significantly late and significantly over budget. The Dreadnought program, again, is, uh, is late. Uh, and as you've pointed out, um, we've got a situation where um, you know, the, the, the Brits haven't decommissioned any of their 22 retired submarines. HMS Dreadnought, which was their first ever nuclear-powered submarine, um, was commissioned 60 years ago. It served for 17 years and for the last 43 years has sat alongside in the UK and they still have not dismantled that submarine yet. I mean, this is just a, a bizarre place to go to get a future capability. Now, I suspect the reason that that's occurred is that there's nothing that the US defence industry will defend more than the United States than their own industry. And I, you know, the the idea you go to uh, the US and get some Virginia class submarines, again, that's a safe option. And we, I'm sure it was probably proposed that we could build, we could become the third Virginia class production yard in the United States. They have two yards at the moment that are not meeting the demand of the US Navy we could have potentially said, look, let's have the third yard in Adelaide uh, for both Australian and other US submarines, but I don't think US industry would have permitted that. Mm. They're very, very strong. Uh, and so the government went looking for a political solution, and that is this sort of uh, submarine submarine with all sorts of knobs on it, and that is the, the British uh, AUKUS submarine. It's just extremely risky and... My view is, uh, and noting what I said about uh, about the changes that occur with these programs as a function of a change of prime minister and the fact that Albanese will not be around uh, when this particular program sort of starts to to get get uh, real legs, I don't think we'll ever go down that path. I think what will happen is that we will continue with the Collins class submarines. Uh, the Navy's own plan shows that they will retire in 2043. If I work back from 2043, uh, noting that full cycle dockings for Collins class submarines and the life of type extension uh, gives them an extra 10 years life, I think the last um, full cycle docking will occur in about 2033, uh, which is the time uh, in which the first Virginia class submarine is arriving. When that first Virginia class submarine uh, arrives, we simply won't have the crews to man that submarine without retiring a, a Collins class submarine. We won't have the money to continue to do full cycle dockings and life of type extensions. So it's my view that the work in Adelaide will stop around 2033. Um, we'll then see um, what people might describe as a valley. I would say it would will be a cliff. Uh, we'll see no work being carried out in Adelaide from about 2033 onwards. And who in their right mind would then try and rebuild a workforce in South Australia to uh, embark on a, uh, a risky British submarine-designed uh, program? I think uh, if we end up going with the British, they'll end up being built in, in the UK. But I actually think at some stage, some sensible government will simply say, let's stick with the Virginias. Yeah, that's uh, quite a prediction. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a couple of questions, and they're all fairly naive. Um, like, uh, you know, are the British 
submarines more risky than the Japanese or the French ones? Like, do you actually know? Um, look, the, the the British have had a history of delays in their programs and technical problems in their programs. Uh, we know the Japanese are highly reliable in terms of uh, when they make a commitment uh, to deliver a submarine, uh, that they will, uh, in fact, deliver it. Um, so a, that's a chalk and cheese example. Of well, course, you could be talking the, about cars there as well. I mean, <laughs> you know, the yeah, British, Leyland, what do you want, what do you want right? when it's raining, a British car or a Japanese one? Yeah. yeah. So, the, the, yes, they say that the, the British cars are interesting and the Japanese ones are reliable. So, yes. um, um, yeah, look, so, so um, yeah, yeah the, we, we could go to a reputable supplier of conventional submarines, and this is this has been my push since two thousand and nine. Go and buy twenty off the shelf designed submarines, build them in Adelaide. Um, you know, when you think about an operational commander uh, trying to deal with the Australian Defence Force when there are twenty uh, submarines that they have to think about in twenty different locations versus eight. Uh, perhaps slightly more capable submarines in eight different locations. I think the former is is a bigger uh, uh, sort of problem for uh, the anti-submarine warfare commander. Uh, so again, no one has talked about our needs. No one has talked about uh, you know why it is that we're going down this particular pathway. The debate just hasn't happened. Um, but but. Uh, uh, you know, I think that they should have looked more closely at uh, the alternatives, uh, such as uh, you know either the Japanese or, or indeed a, um, a German or a French um, off-the-shelf submarine. And the funny thing about the French thing was that we actually were down, you know, sort of down-specking their nuclear submarine to build a French conventional version. Whole defence always finds the hardest uh, way to do things. <laughs> so, you know, they said they took a uh, they they took a, a, a uh, what was almost approved in design, so one from a manufacturer that had heritage uh, in respect of uh, designing submarines that were building the Barracuda-class submarines, their nuclear-powered submarines, and we said, "Yeah, let's take um, let's take the reactor out and replace uh, replace it with a diesel and a battery." It's kind of like saying uh, to a car to an electric car manufacturer, "Let's just take out the electric uh, components of it, and we'll just put." back into it, a, a, a diesel engine. Um, and by the way, we're the only customer that we're gonna, that, that's going to do that, so we're going to bear all the cost for that. <laughs> when it's just defence defense just, you know, look, I, I want to be really respectful to people in uniform. I think they do a great job on the front line. Um, you know, I, I served in the Royal Australian Navy. They're all really, really professional people. But then they make their way to the top of the tree and they... Um, yeah, they, they run these sorts of projects and they have very little experience in that space. Just as I wouldn't take a project manager and say, right, I'm going to make you a submarine captain, I wouldn't take a submarine captain and say, I'm going to make you a project manager. You know, that, that's not being disrespectful. That's just the reality of it. And you, we have all these generals and admirals and um, air marshals making uh, decisions uh, and or recommendations about projects uh, when they have very little experience in project risk and they're making those recommendations to cabinet ministers who have no idea about project risk. It's just a recipe for disaster and that's why we continuously see um, defence projects going off the rails. 
Rex, it's been absolutely terrific. I, I know you might have had another question, Maria, but I think we're actually very close to uh, to, to our maximum time. Um, so, look, it's been terrific having you on again, Rex, uh, to talk about, Rex Patrick, to talk about uh, all of these issues. We didn't even really get to uh, the question of, uh, of dealing with the, the nuclear waste, you know, do, dealing with these reactors once they get to their end of life. We'll have to talk about that another time because um, that also is an issue that will have... Uh, some very prickly political uh, aspects to it, and and um, it'll be around a lot longer than uh, the memoirs of uh, of you know the the, the sort of um, reprinted memoirs of Anthony Albanese or anyone else you know anyone else thousands and thousands of years potentially for weapons grade nuclear waste uh, in in the case of the Virginia class in particular. Um, so uh, look, thanks, Rex. Really, really terrific discussion. Happy to have uh, engaged, and thank you, Maria. My pleasure, and thank you again, Rex. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. We'll look forward to talking to you again uh, next week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email address, which is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. That is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. And uh, we're, we're always keen for your feedback. So until then, bye for now. Bye. 